So this is recording. <laughs> okay. Um, can you just describe first your position at Paul Weiss and if you know of it existing at any other firm? Yes, so my position is uh, director of the Women's Initiative. Okay. Um, as far as I know, I'm the only person who has a role like mine at my level right. um, in any firm, or law firm, I should say. Right. Um, because I've held similar roles in other professional services firms, mm -hmm. <laughs> but no law firm that I know of. Um, the easiest way to uh, understand what I do or what my role is, mm -hmm. is that it's really, I'm responsible for identifying where we have gender gaps at any point in our pipeline mm -hmm. and designing interventions to close them. Okay. And why do you think that this work is particularly important now well, I've been in the role four years, and I'm the first person in the role. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think that it's any more important now than it was 20 years ago. Right, right. I just think there is a renewed focus on gender diversity, mm -hmm. um, especially in the law firm context, and that's both, that's for primarily external reasons mm -hmm. um, and changes in the two marketplaces in which most law firms compete. Right. The marketplace for talent and the marketplace for clients. Right. So um, now the marketplace for talent, so let's talk about the talent pool for first. I mean, women have been close to 50% of law students for at least 15 years. Right. Um, so, again, it's not all, that all of a sudden there are lots of women. Right. Um, actually, it's really uh, almost two decades because, um, e like, the class of 2000 was in many of the top uh, law schools the first mm -hmm. class to be almost 50-50. Okay. So here we are at 2020. And so we've had two decades of women being close to half. Right. If not half of all law students. Um, however, I think that uh, in the last five years, mm -hmm. um, two things have really raised women's awareness of the issues around gender. Right. So um, one is uh, the you sort of lean in mm -hmm. and, the, and the conversation that lean in so that's what we wanted to understand the forces. Right? Yeah, that we, that a conversation, lean in. Um, so um, conversations among women mm -hmm. were kind of about sort of how to make it in the workplace were, um, weren't as focused. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what Sheryl Sandberg did was really, first of all, she focused the conversation on sort of three key, you know, things that women do, right? And she wrote a book that because of who she is, that the men right. um, li like listen to. And I remember when that book first came out, like people would tell me that they like were in an airport or whatever, and they would see like men reading <laughs> that book. So, you know, it just... It, it, it got, it, it made it front and center in a different way. Right. So I think it was... Even when we don't, don't dismiss it, you know, 
most right. of them is uh, right. it. Right. It got senior male leaders mm. to pay attention. Right. And, and we had this whole sort of campaign when that first came out. I was... Um, I was... A, I, no, no. I, I was... A, it came out in 2000... 11, right? Mm -hmm. That sounds right. Maybe not. Maybe that's too long ago. Um, But I I think I was at BlackRock. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had this whole campaign of getting the men to read the book, and they would. You know, so there was some senior male business leaders, like, really, um, I think it was eye-opening for them. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. And then in the last five years, obviously, there's been the Me Too movement. So as a result of those two things... Women, as a um, as a consumer, if you will, right, are getting much more um, savvy, right, about um, you know looking for um, and and putting pressure on firms right. to to really explain how they are, you know. How, how they treat women mm-hmm. and what kind of work environment women can expect. Right, right. And I think that has really made a difference. So that's one thing. Right. The other um, external factor mm-hmm. is in the other marketplace in which law firms compete, which right. is the marketplace for clients. And there again, it's like two different sort of strands. Mm-hmm. Um, that come together. So the first strand is the increasing number of women in house, mm-hmm. um, and women in uh, um, decision making positions in house. Um, so the number of women GCs in the Fortune 500 has been rising at a much higher rate right. than the number of women equity partners in law firms. Um, so those women are in house women are starting to ask like, where are the women? Right. Um, so that's one thing. But the men are also asking where are the women right. because they're getting a lot of um, signals from their own leadership mm-hmm. around the importance of diversity in um, innovation, you know, on teams that for problem solving purposes and what, you know, what are lawyers in the end but you know, very sophisticated problem solvers. Right. Um, that there is just overwhelming evidence now that diverse teams are produce better um, decisions when the the um, the teams working on complex, ambiguous problems. Right. So, I mean, this is why Goldman Sachs just said they are not going to do any IPO. Yeah. Of a, a that was amazing. A, you know, yeah. that has an all female, that has an all male board. That's why Goldman right. Sachs yeah. says that. Be, right. I mean, it's not for any other reason that they are now convinced. Right. That actually, you get better business results mm-hmm. with diverse teams. So you know, uh, we went, uh, we went in the fall to Goldman Sachs. They hosted us. Oh. Dina Powell headed it. Because mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. I wanted the ideological. Right. Diversity too, right. and, right. and the other woman we met was Afton Silda. Okay. She was okay. So, right, right. So, so you know, I mean, you that look. We we did. We just recently did an event with um, 
We partnered with 100 Women in Finance to do an event with you KKR. Know what, listening to this, uh, Lindsay, we, we should really put all of this on our spotlight because what she's saying about the IPO and Goldman Sachs, these are like breaking news. It's it's important. Mm -hmm. right? So we could we should highlight this. Right. Because I feel if I if we just put it in the compendium, it gets lost. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could link to an article, or whatever. And you know, you could link to some like um, states. Um, State Street Advisors also, um, right. you know, has done some research around this. Um, Credit Suisse just came out recently with a report about this, uh, you know, about gender diversity. And McKinsey does <laughs> yeah. their oh, Diversity yeah. Matters reports uh -huh. right. that they update periodically that show, a, a, you know, a clear dividend. And, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, Goldman's talking about it at the board level. Right. Um, but um, some... Uh, you know, uh, most of the research, frankly, is focused on diversity at the management level. Mm -hmm. So internal C-suite and, and, you know, senior leadership. Because right. board is one thing and governance issues and all of that, no question, is important. But, you know, when we're talking about women in leadership, what we're really talking about is are there women in senior management roles right. like CEO, CFO, COO, all of those. So um, so I, I think that uh, more and more companies understand this, mm -hmm. um, that they're actually leaving something on the table. And we had, uh, as I was saying, a panel of three very senior women at um, KKR mm -hmm. come and speak about their outlook for the market. Um, but also to our corporate partners, but also to about, you know, what KKR is doing internally. And, I mean, they have put significant um, effort behind gender diversity, and right. they have moved their numbers, like, quite a bit um, yeah. in the last five years. Right, right. Um, so that's, you know, if KKR and Goldman Sachs and, you know, Huge players. And in huge yeah. players. Blackstone also. Uh, right. You know, I mean, these are, <clears throat> there's a reason. Yeah. Um, aside from the economic imperative for gender diversity in the workplace, in your book, Mass mm -hmm. Career Customization, you make a kind of radical argument that appealed to me more of mm -hmm. kind of this abstract notion of fairness, mm -hmm. that fairness is a virtue in and of itself and doesn't mm -hmm. need this justification of, oh, it's going to improve profits or something. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's not an opinion that you hear often, but I find it so appealing compared to the others. Um, well, this is my whole philosophy, really. Everything I do comes from what I call the power of and. Mm -hmm. It's not an either or. Right. It's, it's the right thing to do and the smart thing to right. do. Right? I mean, if you treat people well, if you design systems with women in mind, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I, I, I like to say, like, what if the default of the ideal worker, when you think of the ideal worker, what if you immediately thought of a woman? Right. Like, what would change if you immediately thought of a woman as the ideal worker? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which she is. Right. So, in <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so what is your default? Like, it, right. Um, if you design workplace practices and systems that mm -hmm. work for everyone, right. including women, 
you know, you don't just end up with a fairer system. Right. You end up with a better business system from a business perspective. Right. Because, you know, the majority of, of businesses in the world and, and um, you know, definitely in the U.S., um, the, for the majority of businesses, the majority of their value is in intangible assets, right. which is basically their intellectual capital, which is basically their human capital. Right. So, right. so, so it just, it, by definition, if you do things that are better for your people, you're going to do things that are better for your business. Yeah. It's an and. I don't think we have to, you know, choose. Right, right. <laughs> Definitely. And have you found that in presenting the argument that way, that fairness is good in and of itself, you've found as much of an audience among male would-be allies as the economic argument? Yes. yes. I actually, um, one of the things that might be a, a little bit of a dirty little secret um, in my business is that the business case does not take you all the way. Right. If you just talk to business leaders about the business case, right and put all kinds of data in front of them. No. Um, mm-hmm. It's not as compelling. It, it, so, it's yes. mu- it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally, you know, it, it's, it, it can make them more open right. to what you're suggesting, but it's not, it doesn't take them all the way. I mean, again, it's the power of and. Right. You need to, um, you need to appeal to both mm-hmm. their, um, the human, the, the humans, right? The, so, the, their, yes. you need to appeal both to their rational mind as well as their and humanity. their, yeah, humanity. and their humanity. So yes. you, I want you both and you, especially to your going to be the researcher to look at just Sally Mary, who's a legal anthropologist at NYU Law. She was at Wellesley, and then she moved to NYU Law, did this recent book where having collected data all her life as an anthropologist, mm-hmm. where she says data alone is, is not, not enough. Mm-hmm. It's necessary, but not sufficient. It's that, you yeah. know, that, that right. famous, like, way of legal framing around right, things. Right. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It right. doesn't take yeah. you all the way. Yeah. It just doesn't. And, and it is almost like you're, the, you know, we discussed this in class, you're commodifying this, mm-hmm. right? The need to kind of say such a large percentage as if one or two women who have been discriminated is not enough, right? Well, right, and also, um, I mean, here's the thing, and this is, I mean, I don't know if you want to get so deep. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, but um, when so you think about it from the... the numbers, Sally Mary challenges in NYU law, the shorthand trips of global indicators. It, I mean... So she says that, I mean, this is in human rights and global justice, that there is a seduction of quantification mm-hmm. that is not seductive. Right. <laughs> Right. You question it. That if you only try to speak in the business of language, mm-hmm. um, uh, and 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 fundamentally, and this is what I tell my students because I teach a course at Stern. Oh, at very the business cool. Yeah. Stern called um, uninclusive leadership, and I say, I mean, in the first class, I say, look, you know, what you have to understand is diversity and inclusion is a 
change management right. challenge. Right, because you are trying to change processes and systems right. to come so that you have different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you have to change people's behavior. Right. Right, so you have different outcomes. That's so that. so they don't always produce the anticipated outcomes. Right. So so if so what is your theory of change? Mm -hmm. I mean I think yeah. fundamentally right. you have to have a theory of change. And for a long time like when, you know, the folks like doing the work that I do, mm -hmm. you know, the theory of change was around, you know, um, make a compelling business case right. because what you're trying to change is business mm -hmm. practices. But um, uh, you know, and so really sort of frame the problem in that way. Right. But actually, it that doesn't completely work. Yeah. Um, and even if you look at um, John Carter's famous book on leading change, mm -hmm. um, you know, his model for build a burning platform, like even in, in his model, the burning platform fundamentally is a business issue mm -hmm. that, that has to be addressed. But the way you... Um, communicate that burning platform is not just around it's not just with data right and he opens that book I don't know if you do I don't know if you have it but I have it on my shelf because it was the first book I read when I got to right. Catalyst they, and he talks about this guy you know in a manufacturing company and they manufactured gloves and right. they had all these different sort of systems for doing that and I don't know remember exactly what you know the the business issue was, but what he did was he called this big meeting because mm -hmm. he was wanted to present a different way of manufacturing what they, whatever it was, and he put like in the on the center of the table this huge pile mm -hmm. of like the their merchandise right. to show like how sort of un uniform it was. Yeah. And so it was like, it, it was a, you got a visceral emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. He elicited a visceral emotional reaction first. Right. And right. then he showed them the numbers. Yeah. And then they all said yes. Right. You know? Right. So. Um, Do you think that there's a parallel in terms of communicating these messages to men when we say things like, you have daughters or your right. wife is work. I mean, trying to create a more personal connection. Yes, I think, um, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there is a little bit of research that shows that men who have daughters are more likely right. to, like, pay the, the women right. um, fairly, <laughs> for example. Um, but, and that male managers who have mm -hmm. wives who work outside the home are are more likely to advance yeah. um, women than male managers who don't. Right. So yes, there's definitely sort of that lived experience element of it, mm -hmm. and I, I, I really am, you know, am a big believer in storytelling right. as a as a lever. Yeah. You know, as something you have to include when you make your case. You have to. Oh, or at least in the way you present your case. Right. 
to that end, was your motivation to be so involved in these issues something out of your personal experience in the workplace or reading social science? No, no. That's the privilege that (laughs) our generation gets. We just get to read about it and be like, oh. Yes and no. I mean, uh, um, yes, um, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I do this work for two reasons. One, because my mother uh, worked my whole life. Mm -hmm. She was an architect. And she was um, the only woman in her Yale architecture class of 1950. Wow. <laughs> and she was told explicitly that she was paid less than the men wow. because mm-hmm. the men had families to feed, even though she was divorced and right. she was this sole breadwinner in our family. So I... I had, first of all, I always assumed, you know, it never, it never occurred to me not to work. And I, you know, felt very strongly that she was, you know, not treated fairly. Right, right. And then, you know, what really kind of um, changed the course of my career was that I was pregnant my last semester of law school. Oh, wow. And, um... I clerked for a federal judge, mm-hmm. so I showed up uh, almost five months pregnant to my clerkship. You know, um, I didn't take a very long maternity leave, but thank goodness my oldest daughter was very, you know, she slept through the night pretty early and she was a very easy baby. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had it made because it was a it was a perfect job for a new parent, you know, new mo- being a new mother because right. the courthouse opened at nine and closed at five. and. Not you being know. asked to stay much longer. Right. And it wasn't like like a law firm job, right. you know, being right. a first-year associate at a big firm. So uh, that was in Chicago, and then we moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And because um, my husband at the time really wanted to be back on the East Coast. And um, I, you know, I um, interviewed at all the big firms, because right. that's what you do when you graduate from Harvard Law School, even though I had... Never really intended to do that. Right. <laughs> that. I found myself interviewing with all the big firms, and I did not get a single job offer because I told them I had a 10-month-old at home. Right. And I, I would, like, have me out to lunch with partners. They were, like, mm-hmm. schmoozing with me. And then, like, I would mention that I had this 10-month-old at home. And, by the way, my mother died when I was young, and mm-hmm. my grandmother was also living with me, her mother. I didn't tell them about that because... That yeah, too, too, too much too much information. But you know what? I mean, I had a kid, and I I mean, I loved my daughter, and it never occurred to me not to talk about her. To right, hide her, right. Yeah, he never to hide her, her. Right. right, and 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 you would literally see like wow. their their eyes sort of yeah you know distance and themselves and um and I didn't I I I couldn't I didn't get a single job of yeah. it, and so I called the law school and the placement office, which is what it was called at the time. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can't get a job. And um, and they said, well, why don't you try these like smaller quasi-public interest firms? And that's where I, and I, I did eventually end up practicing at a 16-person firm that did environmental and land use work, which actually was probably the the perfect fit for yeah. me. I just had never, I didn't even know it existed. You right, know? right. Um, exactly. I mean, our students would love that kind of right, exactly. capacity to do that. Right. Yes. So, um, and, and that's where I had my second and all of that. Right. Um, 
but that experience really um, really sort of um, made me want to do something right, right. about the issue and then I had this opportunity um, when I I was as a, you know I'd come back from my second maternity leave at this small firm and I was working less than full time. Mm-hmm. Um, I went part time after my son was born, um, and I was out to lunch with a friend who happened to be the director of publicity at Doubleday, mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, Ellen, like all these people like my classmates and all these random people are calling me asking me like how do I tell my boss I'm pregnant because like I was the only person anybody right. knew who had had kids and wow. I said I don't have time so for this everyone's muse, like yeah everyone's I was like, I said I don't have time for this somebody should write a book and she's like well why don't you yeah oh, that's and great. she's like I'll help you because so <laughs> she was at double day right 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 so I'm like Okay, I mean... <laughs> so you were a real pioneer in the field. No one had written the book. So, so, um, so actually, you know, um, there was this other woman who was also Harvard Law School, like one year ahead of me mm-hmm. at my, our little firm. And she, she had two kids. She also worked part-time. And she had been told point blank that she wasn't ever going to make partner yeah. unless she um, came back full-time. And right. she was so angry about that that she quit. Wow. So I'm like, Carol, let's write this book together. Yeah. So we ended up writing the proposal together. Well, she took a stand when she quit. She, she quit. Did, she, she took a stand. She didn't, even, ha- she didn't even have another job. Exactly. Um, so it was on principle right. that she did. And, um, and, and so the two of us wrote an outline and the proposal and, you know, double day. And then we, and then we started writing the book and then she got a full-time job. So I ended up, you know, really doing most of the work, which is right. fine. But... But, you know, by the time... So here's the end of the story, which is very long-winded. No, no, it's so interesting. Um, When... uh, So the book is called Everything a Working Mother Needs to Know. Mm -hmm. It was published by Doubleday in 1994. You know, let's call the the, the title of this Everything a Working Mother. No, no. No, because... And it just, like, peaks people into... Uh, And then... And... and, um, it's like one of those. I, I, I mean, you know, Lindsay and all will never read. Remember, we read those books about what every pregnant, what is it? What you right. should know when you're pregnant. Yes, like uh, what to do, what to expect what when to you're expecting. Yeah, no, what to expect when you're expecting <laughs> had gotten on the New York Times bestseller list like two months before our book came out. So wow. we were like, wow. wow. Like, so you were following that. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> like, okay, there's a market here, and um, double day, like they. I went on oh, a 25... So you, you kind of mind that market. I don't uh, think Lindsay even gets this. Yeah. You know that the, your mother would have been uh, reading that. Yeah, but because... You I've know, heard of it, yeah. Oh, you've heard of it? I think yeah. it's still popular. I'm yes. sure it's in like its 15th it's edition is. now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, and they, uh, we, um, Carol and I were on the Today Show. Oh, wow. I mean, oh, wow. No, they... Like, double Day pulled... Working all the media connections. All the stops yeah. out, right? That's great. Because it was the... It, um, yeah, the, the Family Medical Leave Act had just been signed by President Clinton. Okay. So, so this was 1993 know. then? Well, it, yeah, I mean, the book came out in January of 94. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. So this is 1993-94. Yeah, so right. Yeah. yeah. That was so, when I was right. just got into law. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
And by the time the book came out and all that, you know, the 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 twenty five city tour and all wow. of that, um, my little firm had dissolved. Wow. Really? After yes. having told Carol she can't be a partner, <laughs> they dissolved it. Yeah, well, they yeah they dissolved. So it's then, <laughs> so then I'm like, okay. Now you have a book and no job. I'm ten years out of law school, mm-hmm. almost. I have three kids at home now because I had my third while I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. And I haven't practiced in three years because I've been writing this book. Like, I don't think I'm going back to practicing law. Right, right. Like, I'm going to do this other thing. And we just had a reunion of, um, of our little firm last week <laughs> uh, for the first time. And, um, and you know, people were asking me. And I, I honestly don't know what I would have done. If the firm had still been around, right? Like if I had could have gone back there, maybe I would have. It would have been not this. It would have been as rich. So it was a it was a blessing in disguise. (laughs) But since since that wasn't an option, and I certainly wasn't going to go start interviewing at firms again. Right, right. You know, having (laughs) had that horrible experience, and yeah, with three kids, and um, I'm like, I think I'm going to do this other thing, and. That's when I ended up working at Catalyst and then right. um, went in-house at Deloitte and Bubble. So now that Very one cool. of our friends at Catalyst uh, came here to, you know, um, oh. what's her name? Oh. From yeah. Simpson Thatcher initially, right? Oh, um, Marissa. Yes. No, no, Marissa, oh. no, she wasn't at Catalyst. Who was the other one? Brandy. 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 Brandy took Brandy over for me. President. Yeah. 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 So when I left Catalyst to go to Deloitte, I was, like, I was like, Brandy take my job. Oh, so you <laughs> gave Brandy your Well, I mean, I didn't hire her because I, know, I was leaving. Okay, but so I was like, helping out. Oh, so that's like, how Brandy Yeah, okay. We had a long conversation about it because she was worried, you know, she was coming out of, she was in-house and she had a pretty, you know, senior role at NBC by that point and um, she was like, you know, I don't want to make a non-profit right. salary forever and I'm like, look, I, I will, you know, Catalyst was an amazing springboard. All right. of my, the friends I had at Catalyst, all of my colleagues it's ended up. It's the most up. rigorous research organization on these issues. There's right. no other go-to place yeah. for these, for right. the real data. Right. So, um, so you left Catalyst and did what? So I, when I, I, I went through a divorce <laughs> um, and... You know, I loved working at Catalyst, but I could no longer afford to work at Catalyst. I had three kids, and they right. were getting close, closer and closer to college, and it's like a nonprofit salary scale. I just can't do it. Right. So, um, so I started applying for you know diversity and inclusion roles inside, mm-hmm. on the inside, sort of mm-hmm. going in house, the equivalent of going in the house for a lawyer, and um, and you know Deloitte took a big chance on me, right. frankly, because I had never worked in a big company. Um, so I was hired by Deloitte in 2005. Mm-hmm. But he wrote the book on this to, issue, so. to, um, yeah, to, to lead the women's initiative. So, wow. um, this was when? 2005. 2005. Okay. And, and this is when they were just starting to create these diversity and inclusion. Well, actually, um, one of the so Deloitte is a very interesting case study. Um, Deloitte was the first major private sector um, 
organization to focus on gender as yeah. a business strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had, their women's initiative had really, they had stood it up in like the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. 1995 really is the kind of official date. So by the time I got to Deloitte, it was 10 years. Yeah. You know. So they and, had the real time. Yeah. And they had done a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as with anything, the, the you know, that you can do, that you do the easy stuff first. <laughs> so it was like, okay, um, what are we going to do? And, um, and it's very interesting. So the, so my, um, the National Women's Initiative leader, my boss, was, um, a consulting partner. So I was the, the staff person whose day job it was to run the women's initiative. She mm-hmm. was a consulting partner who was leading it the from the yeah. business yeah. globally. Business angle. Yeah, for, I mean, not globally, frankly, from the, in the U.S. Right. And, um, and she had been given a mandate by the CEO mm-hmm. um, to, quote, take the women's initiative to the next level okay. to create what he, he used to say like we I want to see all of our competitors in the rearview mirror because what had happened was Deloitte was the first mover mm-hmm. and they had you know built this enormous reputation as yeah. the best place for women among yeah. the big yeah. accounting firms right. but you know all the other accounting well, firms so had started to yeah. you know catch yeah. up so PwC yeah. hired somebody from right. Catalyst Ernst and Young hired somebody from Catalyst. Right. Um, KPMG hired somebody from Catalyst. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of them. So, um, so, so they uh, the, were being, they were, so they were, they were catching up. Yeah, they, are, they, are they were catching up, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but what a great male CEO. So, no, the what, important, what, well, the business case for this. Yeah, too. so no, by that point, 10 years in, everybody Was understood the value. So can we, uh, do you think we might be able to uh, interview some of the uh, Deloitte people? Sure. Because I, mean, I think it would be a good, because we are also doing this in the business, you know, in the business world yeah. too. It would be great to have some male allies whom we can interview. Oh, so interview some men yeah. from Deloitte? Yeah. Well, you know, it's very interesting. So one of the things, so we did a couple things. Mm-hmm. So Kathy, Kathy Benko, who I wrote Massacre Customization right. with, she was my the boss, the consulting partner right. that I was talking, referring to, and um, she so um, she did a couple things. She redefined her role. Um, all the other win leaders had come off the line, and had been in this like um, role as national women's initiative leader mm-hmm. as a full time job. Right. But she felt that that actually reduced their credibility internally because they were no longer client-facing. Yes. So she said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to stay on the line. Um, and she's like, and we need men as win leaders. Right. And, so she, in, and she appointed the first male um, win leader, mm-hmm. Paul Silverglade, who is still at Deloitte and I think 
you know. We would love to show he's based in, he, champion. Yeah, he's based in California. But we could do a phone interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would, would you be able to? Because I think of it would be great. Yeah, and Paul, he would love it too. To, yes, to be able exactly. To showcase in this. And Paul, because I'm looking at like David Wilkins, mm -hmm. he's number one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these men who gave, were the, they were the wind beneath our right. wings, right? Right. Oh, and David Paul, you know, Paul will say, so. So, so let's do Paul. That I want Lindsay to do Paul. Yeah. So can you uh, set us up with Paul? Yes. And he's a very senior, distinguished. Uh, I mean, I, I assume he hasn't retired. I mean, they have mandatory retirement at Deloitte, oh, so, really? but I don't, I don't think he's retired. He's a partner, know, so he's. Yeah, yeah, he's a. Um, senior. He was a um, accounting, so he was an audit. Oh, Kathy okay. was in consulting. Okay. Um, Kathy is retired because of mandatory retirement. Um, Paul, let me just see. Because I want to put together a roster of distinguished men who my yeah. students can interview in, uh, in the fall mm. for the next class. As I said, yeah. I'm doing the David Wilkinsons of the world. So now, oh, look at him, he's so nice. I love Paul, he's like the <laughs> best. Okay, he leads the Deloitte uh, Technology, Media, and Communications Industry Practice. Lin this, cool. He would be Lindsay's ideal yeah. boss, the media technology. This is, yeah. this is like TMT. the This is yeah. fabulous. Very yeah. cool. Oh, could yeah. you, so I'll send you the link to our website that David Getz is putting in. Quote, Minot, all of that. No, I mean, I have all of that. You no, sent but that can to me already. Can you send it to us? Can you send it to him and introduce me? And sure, of course. I mean, look, I, I'm telling it. you, you know, and Paul will say, like. Because I want a male perspective on how yeah. this took And so, so, anyway, so Kathy had already asked Paul to be a, right. a national wind leader. He was the first. And. So, Paul, what's his last name? Silverglade. Um, mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah. Great. Okay. And, um, and, and we had, and so, and she had. Who, whom they gave the Catalyst Award to, like the male champions? Those no, no. Huh? No, I mean, the Catalyst Award went to the company, not to a person. I thought the CEOs, I have been to the, the, the CEO has to accept it, but it goes to the company. Because a lot of the people whom David, you know, the head of uh, American Express mm -hmm. and Merck, mm -hmm. his two friends, mm -hmm. who are involved, you know. Yeah, yeah, Ken Chenault and um, Frazier, what's his Frazier. question? Ken yeah. Frazier. Ken Frazier, right. Ken Frazier and... Uh, yeah, yeah, they, I mean... They are like the two most successful black, black men in business, right? right? Yeah. Both actually, yeah. Right. They are like icons. Yeah, but... Um, I don't know whether we can interview them because they're so iconic. No, I like, mean... They, they won't give us 15 minutes of their time. Yeah. But um, anyway, so back to my story about Deloitte. So right. 10 years in, Kathy puts a, a man on the National Women's um, leadership, Initiative Leadership, and so she... Um, she revises the mission statement of the Women's Initiative, which wow. had had been for the first ten years very internally focused, mm -hmm. um, at, to state to be um, the Women's Initiative drives marketplace growth and creates a culture where the best choose to be. Okay, this is the second. 
version so of it. So this is the revised sort of yeah. second generation mission Very cool. of the women's initiative. And that would be so interesting to compare the text between and, the two. And the and the um, the there was it was very intentional that mm-hmm. that um, so it had a dual focus. Right. One was external, one was internal, and it was very intentional that that external focus um, came first. Right drives marketplace growth. So she said to me, our challenge, given what the CEO has told us to do, is to do one big thing. Mm-hmm. in each of those areas. Okay. Right? One big thing in the marketplace and one big thing around culture. Right. So Paul is the first male national director, right? Of the organization. Yes. So I think it's just such a wonderful... Right. So, um, so we're like, okay. So I'm like, okay, marketplace. Hmm, what are we going to do about marketplace? So, you know, Deloitte prided itself on selling to this the audit committee chairs of mm-hmm. the fortune 500 and you do an analysis of you know the gender breakdown of audit committee chairs and you get like single digits right, <laughs> so right. i'm like that's not going to help me and even i mean because this was back in 2005 right you know even if i look at cfos chief financial officers mm-hmm. in our you know fortune 500 that's a little bit better. It's like low double digits, like 10, 11%. Right. And I'm like, hmm. So let's reverse engineer this. Mm-hmm. And let's ask our partners. Right. Have you sold to so a woman? Have been co-authored in by Michael Gullion, Leadership and the Sexes, Using Gender Science to Create Success in Business. So they talk about um, a leader of the company, women's initiative has been marketed really want to make a difference for women, it has to make sense for all partners. Right. Paying attention to men's mentoring and coaching needs helped women. Needs have helped women, just as paying attention to women's mentoring and coaching needs helped women. So, so and so, so, but this is a very interesting because Paul was uh, ended up being very involved in this. So, mm-hmm. so, but, so, what I'm about what? to tell you. So, so we um, we're like, okay, well, let's just instead of looking at the marketplace from a just numbers perspective right. let's find out about our own clients right like and let's ask every partner at the firm male female mm-hmm. have you sold to a woman in the last two years if so do you think women buy differently from men mm-hmm. buy our services differently from men and if so what do you mean by that interesting so we surveyed i mean short survey right we got a pretty good response rate, all the partners. Guess how many had sold to a woman in the last two years, in 2005? Single digits. 91%. Really? That was literally shocking to me. And I've That's been doing so this shocking. for a while. 91%. So it turned out that that whole, like, we sell to the audit committee chairs of the Fortune 500 right. was a myth. Right. That actually our, our clients were everywhere. And I tell this to our partners all the time. I'm like, don't just focus on the GC. Right. There are women everywhere. Our clients are everywhere in, in these in these companies. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the comptroller, and it was the vice president for finance, and it was, you know, I mean, on the consulting side, it was, you know, the chief strategy officer and the and the I don't know what like the IT people like there were women everywhere right in at all levels buying Deloitte services absolutely and so 
91% they had sold to a woman. Like, that, a woman had been the buyer. The point person, yeah. But that's what even said. Amy Weaver says sales force to the buyers are women. Right. And they all, all the ones who had sold to women say, I think they, women do buy differently from mm-hmm. men, but I have no idea what that looks like. Like, I don't know. I mean, I just get this sense, but I don't know what that Right, means. right. So we said, okay, well, let's just ask them. Mm-hmm. So we asked our women clients, we actually videotaped some of them, and we asked male clients, and we asked male and female rainmakers about the whole sort of um, sales process, whatever. Mm -hmm. And we created, we used that as the core of a training that we had put 500 partners through by the time I left Deloitte called Women as Buyers. Wow. Um, we did that training mostly for our men, mm-hmm. for the men, as a way of of the men really getting feeling like they were getting value out of the women's mm-hmm. initiative, like what was in it for them. Paul was a facilitator. We had right. men and women partners, you know, um, helping to facilitate each session. Paul mm-hmm. was, you know. Um, I mean, he didn't do all of them in the end because that's... Right, it's a lot. Deloitte's <laughs> a big place. Yeah. But he, at the beginning, he was in almost all of those trainings. Wow. And by the time I left, those 500 partners collectively reported that going through that training helped them bring in $750 million of new business. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. Okay, so what did we talk about in that training? So... I like to say that they were like basically three sort of buckets mm-hmm. um, of, of discussion or three kind of themes. The first was around the composition of pitch teams. Mm-hmm. So what we heard from women clients was that, you know, especially if they were major in big companies, um, that like the team had to put in all this effort to bring a very senior person from Deloitte with them mm-hmm. to the pitch. Like, you know, preferably the CEO, but somebody very senior, right? And the women clients were like, you know what, loved meeting the CEO, really nice guy, but unless he's actually working on my project, right. I don't care. Like, I don't really care about meeting the CEO. So, like, they, you know, like, informally... Like the the thought was like you have to impress potential clients right. with bringing a really senior person, and actually the women didn't want to be impressed. <laughs> they don't care about that as much. Right. The, they wanted to meet the team, and they didn't want just you know people sitting in the, in the back of the room mm-hmm. and not saying anything. <laughs> like they actually wanted to know who are these people and what is their role going to be. Right. And so it really led to a change in the way pitch teams were. Um, you know, composed like, and the roles that people had in, in the pitches and even the pitch books themselves. Like we said, look, you have to, especially if you're going to go pitch to a woman, you have to include something about these people. Right. It can't just be a list of names. It should be like their photograph and a little bit about them, even personal stuff, like, yeah. you know, because that's what women respond to. Right, right. Um, so that was one sort of stream of conversation. Mm -hmm. The second was around entertainment because, you know, uh, I cannot tell you how many senior women have said to me, 
I'm a really good golfer and nobody's ever asked me to play golf. Or, conversely, I love football and nobody's ever asked me to a football game. Right, right. Or, conversely, I hate football and all I ever get asked to is a football game. <laughs> it's like, right. You know, yeah. I mean, like, and because yeah, men are yeah. doing the entertaining based on what they like to do. Right, right. And, and, like, and so, I mean, this was, I mean, this is not very complicated. Like, the main message we said was just ask. Right. Like, ask, what do you like to do? <laughs> You don't assume. Like, do you like to play golf? Oh, you're really good golf player? Well, great. Or, you know, do you like to go to the opera? Or what do you like to do? Right. You know? Um, and ask them, like, which is better for you, lunch or dinner? Or maybe breakfast? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of these women have families. Like, they don't want to go out to a fancy dinner. Right, right. Like, and be drinking for hours. And don't make them do that. Like, right. That's not how you build relationships with women. Like, just ask them. Yeah. So, you know, that that was the whole sort of conversation. And then the sort of third, maybe the most sensitive, was around really understanding that um, that sort of hypersensitivity to microaggressions mm-hmm. that senior women feel because they've experienced these microaggressions for so long. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and we actually like played some clips of, you know, that of like commercials, like car commercials. You never see a woman in a car commercial, and you know, uh, like um, women f- and and like even women partners in the room would say, like, you know, I we, my husband and I just went to buy a car, and the car salesman like didn't even refused to even acknowledge that I was there. Or like although, even, although I'm paying for the car, car yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have, right on the, the pro, oh, right. Or my 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 boss Kathy would tell the story about going to a financial advisor, and like telling the financial like a new financial advisor mm-hmm. and telling him how much, um, like how much she made, and he's like, no, no, like a a year, like how much do you make a year, like like he didn't believe her that wow. like, that was how much she made. He thought she like that that was like how much she made like had made in her lifetime or something. Like I mean, literally over and over this is what women experience. Right, I'm telling right. you. So so we were like and we uh, and we had filmed this woman client who had said who who where this actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um the Deloitte team had come in, they were all men and um and they were like talking to her and uh and you know, and having a good conversation, and then at one point, the most I guess the leader of the team turns to her and says, "Like it's been great talking to you, and mm-hmm. but you know, when um, can you let us know when we're gonna meet the decision maker?" Mm-hmm. Wow! And she's like, "I am the decision maker," <laughs> and the decision is now. <laughs> you see, that's so, so like, great. If you experience that over yeah. and over again, right. you're hypersensitive exactly. to it, which means that. You're going to remember it. Right. Like, you're, you're just, it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful because if you are careful or even if you show that you understand sort of that sense, that you're sensitive to it, mm-hmm. you know, um, you even say, like, you know, I just went through this training or talk about, like, what what you now understand about gender right, dynamics. Right. Like, they're going to remember that, too. They're going to think that's, like, the coolest thing since sliced bread. And Paul used to talk about how being a women's initiative leader was such an in 
to all these women right. business people that he that would never have talked to him otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So anyway, um, that's really interesting. So that's what we did on the marketplace side. And as you now um, are very familiar with, on the culture side, right? On mm-hmm. the internal culture side, we did mass career customization. Right, right. So we did two really big things. Yeah, that's huge. And it, 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 it kept Deloitte on the sort of front, you know, kept its position as a market leader. Right. Because we, like, mass career customization was literally... Like we just we had no idea externally how big that would be. Yeah, I mean it is still mm-hmm. one of HBS's um, best-selling books, <laughs> and that's amazing. I mean, it was a blockbuster for HBS. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, with an interest in keeping you on time because I'm sure you okay. have a train back. I do. At some point, I want to move to the so present. Um, and talk about Paul Weiss. Okay. So last January, 12 new partners were elected. Mm-hmm. 11 were white men and mm-hmm. one was a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious on a personal level what the aftermath of that announcement was like for you as someone who's made this your life's work. Mm-hmm. Was that sort of a, a gut punch or did it motivate you and the subsequent press coverage sort mm-hmm. of motivate you to change things? Well... I'm very motivated mm-hmm. to change, and that that didn't change my motivation right, at all. Right. What it did do is create, as I like to say, a crisis. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So, you know, <laughs> internally, it created a crisis of, con- of like, conscience. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as you can well imagine, that decision was not the result of what had happened the months before or even the year before or even two years before. Right, right. You know, who makes partner is the cumulative effect of hundreds of decisions that are made for years. Mm -hmm. In that particular situation and the reason, and I never felt like we really explained this as well as we could have, Mm -hmm. um, that class was a result of really an anomaly because eight out of the 12 mm-hmm. were lateral council hires and in different departments that had all been mm-hmm. given certain promises, let's mm-hmm. just say. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't really say too much, but, but that was not the result of, of a of the pipeline. Right, right. It was really an anomaly. Yeah. In that sense. It was the result of lateral council hires. Yeah. And frankly, a um, um, the lack of a coordinated approach to lateral council hiring. Mm -hmm. I can say that, I'll say that. So. um, That almost hurts even more though, to know that it's someone who didn't have to fight through six or seven years of being an associate. I don't know. I, I can't imagine well, that felt good. Yeah, not, internally. It was, yes. Yeah. So this is why I say it was a crisis of, right, right. of conscience. Because I, everybody was like, oh. Yeah. How did you go about restoring the moral credibility of the institution and its so, decision making? So, you know, um, 
fast forward to December of last year where are they, um, what is it called, American Law Media, whatever, ALM, gave mm -hmm. us the, you know, Law Firm of the Year Award. Right. And part of that was because we didn't, you know, hide behind or, or like, shut down because of what happened in January. Right. We actually leaned into it and mm -hmm. we created what we call an inclusion task force and they met literally every week all last year wow. and came up with um you know a lots of recommendations which we distilled down to about 20 and we're in the middle of implementing those so yeah this whole year is about implementing changes in the way and and a lot of the changes are systemic mm -hmm. um, in the way we do things. So, for example, I mean, I've been saying since I got to the firm, because I learned this at Deloitte and at BlackRock, like, one of the reasons we haven't been able to make a lot of progress is because we have no way of measuring progress mm -hmm. and we have no way of keeping partners accountable. Right, right. So, you talk about trying to make change when you don't know what you're measuring <laughs> right and and yeah. nobody feels they're accountable for it good luck with that right exactly so you know i'll tell you i mean one of the things that literally is um you know getting built and about to be rolled out mm -hmm. as we speak is a matter management dashboard for every partner that shows the partner who's on their matters mm -hmm. what percentage of women and people of color their teams represent mm -hmm. and how that compares to the percentage of women and people of color in the firm overall. Wow. So you can't, you will you, literally as a partner by the end of this year, you will not be able to say, Oh, I had no idea that there was only one woman on my matter. Right. You, right. you will literally not be able to say that because right. yes, you did know. Yeah. That's and really what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, and everybody's going to know that at the end of the year, the leadership's going to ask you if right. you have if that's what your teams look like like what are you going to do about it right. or why, how did this happen or why did it end up like this you're going to have to have explain yourself mm -hmm. that's that's what in my business i call soft accountability right because i saw that work at deloitte this idea that yes you can go all the way to either you know docking people's bonuses or adding to their bonus based on their um, performance around diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. but often you don't actually have to go all that right that right. that far you can just sort of rely on soft accountability which is especially in a law firm that because it's not that big and people know each other and there's a lot mm -hmm. of trust and leadership at least at paul weiss you know, nobody's going to want to have to say to Brad, like, I don't know why there was only one woman right, on my right. team. Like, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Nobody's going to want to do that. Right, I right. Can, I guarantee you. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Um, I want to bring up this comment. And that's just one thing we're doing. Right. I'm sure there's... there's maybe you can more. address this in this in the second one. Yeah. But in the New York Times article I was reading mm -hmm. about the Paul Weiss hiring fiasco, I, I read 
a bunch of comments and there's this common theme coming out, which I thought was so interesting. And I'd love to hear your take on it. This one reader says, this is what a meritocracy looks like. When I hire lawyers to do challenging work for my business, I only want the best. If diversity comes as a result of a meritocratic system, great. If not, I could not care less. This is what it looks like when we're only trying to hire the best. Right, so uh, my response to that is the meritocracy is a myth. Yeah. Um, there is no such thing as a pure meritocracy mm -hmm. uh, because career success and who gets advanced is a result of many things, but two in particular, their actual results. So, mm -hmm. you know, how good they are at their job and relationships. Right. Right, because the relationships are the basis of how you get opportunities, how you get visibility. So you need, and how you get sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And you need all three of those. You need people who, influential people who know you, mm -hmm. who are willing to sponsor you, meaning that they're gonna talk about you when you're not in the room. Mm -hmm. They're gonna give you stretch opportunities. I love that. You know, Those and, who talk about you when you're not in the room. Right, I mean, because that's where these decisions get made. Right. And in those rooms, right, when you're not there. And um, and they give you visibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, and connections. Like, I mean, and we all know, like, nobody does their work alone. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Like, everybody does their work with and through other people. And the more senior you are, the more your relationships matter to how you get your work done and how good your, your work is. I mean, right. so to think that the meritocracy is like all about like the individual and the individual's like pure abilities and talent. It, right, it's absurd. It's, it's it, it, we all know that's not true. Right, right. So. Well, we all know, know but. <laughs> Right. But, but this goes back to your original question mm -hmm. about why you can't just make a database business case. Right. Because in the end, um, you have to get leaders to acknowledge that they got there. They got to where they are mm -hmm. because of the relationships that they, they had in their careers. Right. And that, you know, that once they understand that it was about, you know, um, both their work and their relationships, they're more willing to create the, that sort of, you know, environment right. for everybody else. Yeah. Because it, because people do want to believe like they got there on their own merit. Right. Except for women who, when they, senior women who very often get, when they ask like, you know, how did you make it there? Like, oh, I was just lucky. Right. It's like, I, I, I always counsel women never use that. Yeah. Or like, it's not about luck. I mean, there plenty of things in life are about luck, don't get me wrong. And, and that's true at work and anywhere else, but. But it is about the hard work. It's, it, it's never just about luck. It's right. about, you know, putting yourself in a position to take advantage of opportunities when they come your way. Right. Okay, so 
I think that maybe. I think it's kind of like brought all of our leadership uh, narratives together. (laughs) And I'm glad we did this last because now we can highlight it as spotlight. Yeah. And, and Lisa, your question. Do you have any more? Yeah, your questions are amazing. They're very good. Maybe I can email you. I just have like two more. Okay. So go ahead. In the interest. No, of... my train's at two. Oh. I just. Oh, then in that case. Yeah. I mean, I, but my stuff is at my daughter's at the something. Blue something. Blue. Coffee in... blue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Around the corner, right, basically. Right. So I have to just go back and get it. Okay, perfect. Um,. So one of my one of the partners that I worked with at the firm I was at this past summer had this great line in an introductory kind of women in the law thing where she said, advancement requires opportunity, which in turn requires senior partners, mostly white men, to choose you to work with them, to recognize your work and to acknowledge your contributions in front of clients, which is exactly what you're just getting off of. Um, But how can women, particularly women of color and young women who don't have a lot of the same social capital that their peers might have, go about getting such mentors and bonding with them on more than a superficial level? That is a great question. Um, And I'm going to send you um, a really, I think, powerful article that um, actually somebody I've known for years at Catalyst, from Mm -hmm. my Catalyst days, who uh, led all the women of color research just uh, recently published about this. It's called Resilience and Failure. Okay. And, um, and I, I think, as a young woman, mm-hmm. when you feel like you don't have a lot of agency and there are a lot of um, sort of unspoken limitations, especially now after Me Too, um, mm-hmm. in terms of your ability to just reach out to more senior men. Right. Yeah, and that that is real. I think you have to um, take the initiative. You have to sort of position yourself as as somebody who wants to learn from them Mm -hmm. and somebody who is willing to, you know, help them, like, Mm -hmm. get their work done. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, if you go at, with, like, this attitude of, like, is there anything that I could do mm-hmm. for you? Like, or, you know, can you look at, like, this memo I've written and give me right, some right. feedback? Or, you know, I really don't think that meeting mm-hmm. went all that well. Can you, you know, what did you think? Like, help me get better. Like, right. I think you have to go with this humility humility and curiosity mm-hmm. and and stance that you want to learn from them right because fundamentally most lawyers and senior lawyers you know who, who are are masters of their craft and they get a, a lot of their identity right. is tied up in being really really good at what they do mm-hmm. and they are and they like to teach I mean you know, they they want to teach younger people what they know. Right. So, so you tap into that. Mm-hmm. Into that almost kind of narcissism, right? Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that, that egotism e- and that kind of male. Right. And and I think that I think that's. Machismo. I do <laughs> so, think that yeah. works. Right. Um. 
But I've seen it work. We, we, should not, we should say, you know, tap into, you know, people's but, sense of self, right? Right, and, and, to, so and to their... And, 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 and generosity. And their, yes, and their desire to pay it forward. Right. Um, you know, uh, because I do think... Uh, look, maybe Paul Weiss is unusual in this regard. I don't think so. I mean, years ago, um, Judge Rifkin had this whole thing that he wrote about Paul Weiss as a firm, and he, he, he titled it The Teaching Firm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right, so I do think, like, there's... Law firm partners. So Lara Talinch is there. That you know so, that that whole model is based on attrition. Right. Mo- they know most people are are gonna leave. Right. That that's how it that that's the business model. Yeah. But to their credit, they you know they see their role as as helping you become the best lawyer you can mm-hmm. be wherever you go. Right. And honestly, like I've kind of adopted this as part of my strategy, which I call colleagues for life. Mm-hmm. So if you look at where our women go, they are more likely than our men, and in the corporate department, actually significantly more likely than our men to go to in-house. Right. Our men go to other firms. Mm-hmm. So our, our women, bottom line are more likely to become our clients our men are more likely to become our competition (laughs) so so we need to invest in helping women be successful regardless of whether they stay or leave right because that's in our interest right over the long term come in i wanted to so this is one of my other research fellows okay So she, Eduarda, has been doing a fabulous job with me on international women's human rights and looking at Ethiopia's legal framework from a gender analysis. So Lindsay is interviewing her for our compendium, as well as yeah, we're almost right. So anyway, um, so so I think actually um, um, it taps into a really uh, important part of senior lawyers sense of self-worth right. to ask them to teach you right to think of them as your teachers and i think you know that's very that's comfortable and it for is women. empowering to both right right exactly so rather than think of them as the enemy or as uh, asking for help quote unquote as a weakness mm-hmm. you know think of it as as a uh, as a strength like right. honestly like I, and I don't mean help like that, like you can't do it by yourself, but for advice right. and mm-hmm. for feedback and for counsel. Um, I really think just literally the difference between framing it as can you help me with this, mm-hmm. then can I get some feedback or advice from you about this, right. like makes the world of difference. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. you should now leave because okay. I have to get to a baggage okay. and go to the I station. 